want to read with you from the scriptures. First of all, Matthew 27, the verses 45 to 50. Matthew 27. Beginning to read verse 45. This is the word of God. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then would you turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. I want to read the first 11 verses. We continue to hear the word of God. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then I invite you to turn with me to Lord's Day 16. Lord's Day 16 in the back of your Psalter hymnal. Lord's Day 16. You'll find that on page uh, five or 878. Question and answer 40, 41, 42, 43, and 44. Lord's Day 16, page 878. And I remind you that this is your confession of faith as it is mine. So the question asks, is asked, why did Christ have to suffer death? Because God's justice and truth require it. Nothing else could pay for our sins except the death of the Son of God. Why was he buried? His burial testifies that he really died. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Our death is not a payment for our sins, but only a dying to sins and an, ever, and, a, and an entering into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? 
by his power, our old man, or our old nature, if you will, is crucified, put to death, and buried with him, so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer rule us, but that instead we may offer ourselves as a sacrifice of thanksgiving to him. Why does the creed add, he descended into hell? To assure me, during the attacks of the deepest dread and temptation, that Christ my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from hellish anguish and torment. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word and the summary of that word as we find it in the creeds of the, of the church. May God add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word again this evening. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ gathered here with me in Bowmanville this evening. Upon reading the five questions and answers of Lord's Day 16, it should immediately become clear to us that the thread woven throughout, the, the thread woven throughout, or if you will, the main emphasis of this statement of faith is the death of Christ, and in connection with that, our own death as well. We confess here in this Lord's Day, first of all, the necessity and the reality of his death, and then secondly, we examine also the benefits that are derived from his death, but more specifically, we want to take note of the benefits derived from his death for us, his people. You see, the death of Christ had great consequences for him. His death ended his earthly humanity. It closed off an era of his suffering and his humiliation, and it led to a new era for him, an, an era of exaltation, an era of glory and honor as he returned to again take up the glory that was his before he left his heavenly throne. Though what does his death mean for us as Christians? Does it really make a difference for us that he really died? What are the consequences of his death for us? Does his death also lead to a new era for the Christian? And it is now with these kinds of questions in mind that we examine this evening, Lord's Day 16, using as my theme, the death of Christ. The death of Christ. We will examine the necessity and the proof, necessity and the proof of his death. We then want to take note of our benefits through his death. And finally, we also want to ponder the hellish agony of his suffering prior to his death. Congregation, our Lord Christ died on the cross of Calvary. That's not news to you. But the question before us reads, why? Why did Christ have to go all the way to death? Was it really necessary for him to go to that extreme? After all, had he not already been subjected to so much bitter suffering and humiliation? In fact, in fact, had not all of his earthly life been a constant subjection to scorn and ridicule and suffering? Had he not suffered at the hands of the Jews and the Sanhedrin and, and, had, and had his shame in the courts of Pontius Pilate not been sufficient? Could God not have spared him this final disgrace? Was it really necessary that he had to suffer this final humiliation? That's the question that the catechism would have us entertain first of all this evening. The answer is brief, succinct, and to the point. Christ 
had to die. God's justice and truth demanded the death of his son. Note well, God's justice and truth demanded the death of his son. Nothing else would do. Not all of our prayerful pleadings, nor all of our religious observations or fastings, no amount of our praise or offerings, not even our utmost and earnest striving and attempts at, at good works, not any other person or any other creature can help us to be reconciled to God or, and restore us to his favor. According to our Bibles, no other work save thine, no other blood will do, no strength save that which is divine can bring me safely through. Ah, people of God, it was absolutely necessary for Christ to go all the way to death. There was no other way possible. Try to understand this with me, for this concept and this biblical truth goes to the very heart of the gospel. You see, in paradise, God had said to Adam, if you eat from this tree, from this forbidden fruit, if you disobey me, you will surely die. And you know the story. Adam chose to listen to the voice of Satan. Adam chose to disobey God. And Adam plunged himself into ruin. But, 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 because Adam stood as our representative... When he ate of the fruit, he plunged himself and all of his posterity, including you, me, and our children, into ruin. Because God's word stood firm, you will surely die. And through the willful disobedience of Adam, death entered the world. God kept his word. God kept his promise. Man had sinned, and man must die. Christ then dies he dies our death. That's what's called the substitutionary atonement. You can see then, can't you, why this was necessary? You see, had Christ not died, we would still need to die. We ourselves would need to meet the claims of God's justice. And had God not kept his word, had God not been true, had God changed his mind, or God would have reneged on his word, then God would have instantly have ceased to be God. Had God not honored his threat to Adam, then God's word could no longer be trusted. However, as we have seen, God's word stood firm. In our stead, in our place, God crucified his own son on the cross of Calvary. Why did he have to go all the way to death? Because God's justice and his truth demanded it. In no other way could the demands of God's truth and justice be met. Lord's Day 5 asks the question, if it could be possible for us, if it could be possible for us to escape God's wrath and to be reconciled to him, and the answer is very clear, no, no. The claim of God's justice must be paid in full, either by ourselves or by another. And here we are confronted with the very heart of the matter before us this evening. In order for God to remain true and faithful God, his word must be kept. The claims of his justice must be paid in full, either by ourselves or by another. It would also have been possible, of course, for God to demand that we ourselves would make payment for our sin and to die this death ourselves. However, it would not have been possible for us to pay our obligation and also then to be able to rise from the dead. 
for that only the very Son of God would do. Had God required payment for sin from us, death would have been ours for all eternity. The only way for us to be restored to God and to God's favor was through the death of his own Son. His death made us free. Only his death in our place can give us life now and forever. But the catechism goes on and asks the question, why was he buried? And according to the answer given us, this burial was evidence that he had really died. After all, had the friends of Christ entertained any notion that there was still any sign of life in his broken body, they would never have laid him in the ground. There was no doubt in the minds of Joseph of Arimathea and in the mind of Nicodemus that all life had left the Lord and consequently he was buried. And people got the, the question and the answer is relatively short, but the significance may not escape us. For the reality of his death is of the utmost importance for us. You see, our life for all eternity is inextricably joined to his death. Our present life, our sanctification, and our eternal life, our glorification, is completely dependent upon the reality of his death. <laughs> if the death of Christ is not certain then we also cannot have assurance of his resurrection. And consequently, our own resurrection also remains unsure, uncertain. And such uncertainty would cut the very heart out of the Christian faith, would it not? And to this day, even to this day, skeptics still claim that Christ was not actually dead, but that he simply lost consciousness on the cross and he was, he was merely revived later. And if they are right, then death has not lost its sting and the grave is still for us the victor. But the Bible would have us know otherwise. The gospel record is clear. In Luke 23, we read that Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. According to the scriptures, our Lord died. His body was wrapped in linen and was laid in the grave. A stone was rolled to, the to seal the entrance. And once again, God was faithful to his word. Dust you were, and to dust you will return. A further step in Christ's humiliation. Everywhere in scripture, the grave is portrayed for us as a terrifying result of man's sin. It is a part of the curse from God spoken upon man for his disobedience. And, and here we see the Son of God himself, himself unaffected by sin of any kind. We see him laid in the dark, cold belly of the ground for you, for you, and for me. And in that context, now the next question of the catechism deserves our attention. Have we not just confessed that Christ stood in our place? Has he not paid for all our sin? Has he not fulfilled all of the requirements of God's law for us? If indeed Christ has done and borne it all in, for our poor sake and in our stead, if Christ indeed died for us, why then do we still have to die? 
And you know, there's something haunting about the question. We cannot really settle it to our complete satisfaction. In the first place, that all men must die is not completely true in the strictest sense. All of those who are still alive on that day of the Lord will not taste of death. They will simply be changed in the twinkling of an eye and they will meet him in the clouds. Obviously then they will not taste death in the same way as the saints who have gone on before us. Also the miraculous disappearance of Enoch and Elisha testify that not all will experience death in the same way as we are presently considering it. And perhaps that is also the reason that the catechism really does not answer the question. When the catechism answers with statements about our death being an entrance to eternal life, it does indeed begin to teach of the benefits derived for us in his death. But the question as to why death is necessary for us, it remains unanswered. This question remains a mystery for us and still belongs to one of those things which God in his wisdom has chosen to keep hidden from us. However, rather than finding fault with the catechism for not fully explaining the question of the necessity of our death, let us instead follow the leading of the catechism and consider what the death of Christ has accomplished for us in our own dying. The scripture wants us to know that our dying is not in payment for sin. That needs to be considered first of all. That was the case with Christ, but not for his children. For him, it was a curse inflicted by God, but for the, Christ, for the Christian, death is not a curse. People of God, for the Christian, death is a blessing. That is not to say that we are to, at all times, to long eagerly for death. Life is also a gift of God, and we are also called to appreciate and to enjoy our lives on this earth. And to this same truth also the Apostle Paul testifies in Philippians 1, where we hear him say that for him, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He expresses an earnest desire to depart this life and to be with the Lord. However, he immediately follows that confession by saying that he is torn between a desire to live and a desire to die. He tes testifies that when he dies, he will behold the very face of God. And yet on this earth, he pleads for prolonged opportunity to bring unending glory and honor to God. In the same way, we too, we may long to live in order that we might bring glory to the name of God. We may indeed pray for length of days. However, we do not pray for life in and of itself for our benefit or for our glory. No, we pray, we pray for God to grant us life and breath in order that we might be busy in the fields of the Lord, testifying to his goodness in our, our unending effort to convince our unbelieving neighbors of their need for the Christ. This is also the intent of the instruction of the catechism. It wants to teach us that, 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 that when, when that final enemy, that final enemy, death, when death, that final enemy approaches, when we ourselves are faced with death, we must not, we may not, we must not be terrified, but we must, we must, we must welcome it eagerly in anticipation. Two reasons for such an attitude are given us. Firstly, 
According to the catechism, death puts an end to our sinning. All of God's children, even the holiest of saints, while they remain on this earth, are marked with the stains and the remains of sin. That throughout all of life, the old nature of man is at war with that new creation won by Christ. And constantly we have to be on guard for the temptations of Satan. And time and time and time again, through weakness, we fall into sin. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans, Romans 7, where he cries out in anguish, For the good that I want to do, that I do not do, but the evil that I do not want to do, that I I do. And the same is true for every child of God. People of God, is that not your own experience? And when I point a finger at you, I'm pointing three back at myself. But we so often, we are not what we want to be. And we are not what we are called to be. We want to stand strong and live a life that gives praise and honor and glory to God. And yet time and time again, we fail and we fall and we we need to acknowledge our sin and plead with God for mercy and forgiveness. Every day again, we are taught to fall on our knees before God and say, Oh, Father, forgive me my sins again of this day. And here we are taught that because of Christ's death, our own death, will finally put an end to our sin. As long as I live, sin still lives in me. But at the moment of death, sin dies in me. That's the first blessing that Christ has won for us in his death. But secondly, another great, greater benefit is ours as well. The catechism goes on to instruct us that our death is our entrance into eternal glory, eternal life. We can use here the parallel of the children of God in the old dispensation. Under the providence and the care of the Lord, their God, the children of Israel, they crossed the Jordan and yet, and they set their feet on the solid ground of the promised land. And just as God's people had to cross the Jordan in order to take possession of that holy land, in the same way, the children of God, the children of Christ in the new dispensation, they must also cross that Jordan. They must cross the Jordan of death. And on the other side, on the other side is the promised land, a heavenly Canaan made up of the Father's house of many mansions, mansions of glory prepared for his children. And as it was with our Lord who led the way in our death as well, body and soul are separated in death. Our bodies are returned to the dust of the ground to await the return of the Lord in the fullness of his time. And our souls, our souls are immediately taken up and received in glory. Your last breath on this earth will be your first breath in glory. And seen in that light, people of God, my dear precious people of God, seen in that light, the Christian no longer contemplates the question of the necessity of death. He no longer asks the question, why must I die? No. The Christian rejoices in the knowledge that he will and may die. He rests assured and is comforted by the knowledge that in his death 
His body is delivered from the bondage of sin and an eternity in glory with his creator awaits him. Ah, my dear people of God, capture this with me now. Through the death of Christ, a wealth of blessing has been given to us. The way to God, the way to God's favor has been restored. Forgiveness of sin has not been simply been made possible, but has been made a fact. The sting has been removed from that final enemy we know as death. The grave no longer is the stronger. The grave no longer is the victor. And our death has been changed. It has been changed into a gateway to heaven. And all of these benefits have been earned by Christ for the children of God, you and for me. But the catechism will have us know that there is still more good news for those who know themselves to be Christ's possession. In, in, in fact, our old cells are crucified, put to death, and buried with him so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer rule us. Oh, we do well to pay close attention here. Note, first of all, that the Catechism says that our old natures, or to be more precise, are or are being put to death. That process we call sanctification. That process of sanctification has not yet reached perfection and will not be completed on this side of the grave. That's something that, but it is something that must grow in us every day. Every waking moment of our lives, we still wage war against our own <coughs> evil desires and the, and, the, and the commandment still comes to us to strive, to strive earnestly through, to enter through the narrow gate. And therefore the words, we must dedicate ourselves, we must dedicate ourselves as, a, as, a, as an offering of gratitude to him. The old nature of which the catechism speaks is that which still remains in us because of, because of Adam, that sinful nature the one in which we were conceived and with which we have been born will never completely leave us in this life, but it must decrease. The new nature, that which we have become because of Christ and his work, his life, his death, and his resurrection, that new nature must increase. Indeed, the victory of the old nature has been won in Christ but we are commanded to struggle to fight against the desires of the old nature and we, not, we need to be able to look back on our lives and we need to be able to see progress in our road to sanctification. I used to tell my catechumens, you need to be able to look back and you need to be able to see that you have grown in your faith and in your life of sanctification, of holiness. For instance, the movies that you used to watch, maybe now you've come to understand that God doesn't want you to watch them anymore. Some of the entertainment that you participate in, some of the things that you do, all of a sudden you look back and you say, I don't know how I did those things because I know the Lord was not pleased with me. That needs to happen. That new nature needs to grow. The old nature needs to decrease. Oh, the victory of the old nature has been won in Christ. 
but we are commanded to struggle. We're commanded to fight against the desires of the old nature that remain in us. Christ commands us to deny ourselves. He demands us to take up our cross and follow him. It's not enough to rest on our laurels in the conviction that Christ has done it all for us. No, we are to be so filled. We are to be so thrilled and filled with gratitude for God's work of grace in our lives through Christ that we demonstrate that in the way we now live. Once again, congregation, once again, my people of God, we are reminded of the confession of faith in Lord's Day 1. What three things must I know to live and to die in the joy of the comfort? I must know how to walk before the face of God in gratitude for my deliverance. Does not the Bible teach us, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But hear me well. Our old nature does not die through our strength or through our work. No, we may not boast in and of ourselves. Our sinful nature is put to death through the power of the Holy Spirit of God because of the work of the Son of God. May we only be found to boast in the goodness of our God. Let him that glory, let him glory only in the Lord. The confession speaks of of crucifixion, death, and burial. Our sinful desires need to be nailed to the cross. Our sinful thoughts and actions must be put to death. Our loose talk, our coarse language, our oneness with the world, our loose living, perhaps, our slander, gossip, inappropriate modes of entertainment, inappropriate, immodest modes of dress, even impure thoughts and gestures, our unfaithfulness to each other. All of these things need to be buried in the grave. I talked this morning about tension and alienation and, 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 and separation in the church, also over COVID. COVID has done such a number on us, people of God. We need to put that aside. We need to begin to live as people of the Lord in the way in which we love each other, in the way in which we respond to each other. It's not wrong to disagree. It's how we disagree that it's wrong. All of these things need to be buried in the grave. The world must be able to see from our conduct and our appearance that there are only two kingdoms in this world. In all of our living, it must be obvious to all of the world that we march to that different drummer. In fact, we're not even in the same parade with them because we belong to a different world from them because we belong to God in Christ. My dear people, God, our entire being must be dedicated in service to him to glorify him in a life of thankfulness for what he has already done for us in Christ. Our living every waking moment of our lives must give evidence of the Christ who lives in us. He who dies constantly unto himself while in this life will not die but will live forever. And the world must see in us that our old nature has been crucified and buried. They must see that we are different from them, radically different because of the Christ who lives in us and rules us. The catechism concludes with the question, why 
does the creed add, he descended into hell. And now here we need to walk very carefully for just a moment. Here in this confession, we would disagree with many other Christian traditions. The, Ro the Roman Catholic Church, for instance, teaches that Christ descended into hell to redeem the saints of the Old Testament from limbo. The Lutherans want us to believe that Christ actually descended into hell to preach his triumphs to the devils that were there. And such interpretations find no basis in the Holy Scriptures. The Bible nowhere teaches that Christ actually entered hell, but he did undergo the sufferings which the inhabitants of hell undergo, and he was subjected to the agonies which make that place hell. And it's for that reason that the Catechism correctly teaches us that our Lord suffered all of his life, but especially on the cross, unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul. Christ did not descend into hell. It would be more correct to say that hell rose up to take him. Hell is the place of God forsakenness. No one on this earth, no matter how far he has removed himself from God, is ever completely forsaken by God. The same sun that shines on God's children to warm their backs also warms the backs of God's enemies. But to be completely forsaken of God, that is hell. Think now of Christ's cry of agony on the cross. Eli, Eli, lamai sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God removed his presence from him. God withheld his grace from him. God turned his back to him. God abandoned him. That's the meaning of true hell, reserved for all of those who fail to acknowledge Christ as Lord and Master. And that is precisely what Christ had to undergo for you and for me. And so, people of God, we have learned how Christ, as our mediator and as our guarantor, had to suffer. How he had to be humiliated to the point of death on the accursed tree. In no other way could atonement be made for the sins of man. In no other way could the sins of you and me be atoned. In no other way could the demands of God's truth and justice be met. In him and in him alone can be found release from the bondage and the guilt of our sin. Only through his substitutionary atonement can we live and die happily, confidently in the joy and the comfort of eager expectation of the crown of glory that is kept safe for us in heaven. My dear people of God, if he is not yet your portion, if you do not yet know him in that full sense of the word, then come with me for just a moment. Come with me to Gethsemane and see the drops of blood pressed from his body in hellish agony. Then come with me to Golgotha. 
Stand there with me for a moment in the shadow of the cross. See there the darkness that enveloped him and listen to his anguished cry piercing the darkness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That same God-forsakenness, that same dark God-forsakenness awaits all of those who refuse to seek their life in him. Go then to him now. Go, run to the cross as fast as your legs will carry you. Go to the cross. Confess your sin. Acknowledge your need of him and plead him for his mercy. And he will give it to you. But for all of those who know themselves to be his possession, you have nothing to fear. Even though according to the decree of God, you must still go the way of, of, of all flesh in death. Do not fear nor be afraid to die. You're not afraid to die. Are you? How could that be? Do not be afraid to die. Be of good courage. Death is not death for you. It's only the death of your sin. And it is your entrance into God's heavenly glory. God's house of many mansions. And one of those rooms has your name on the door. And when the Lord has prepared for it for, for you, he will come to receive you unto himself. You have nothing to fear in death. Death is not death for you. Your death puts an end to your sin and it opens up heaven's portals to you. Even though it is still required of you to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, remember and believe that Christ himself will take you by the hand and he will lead you safely across the Jordan to the other side. He has prepared that way for you and he's prepared a room for you in his father's house of many mansions. Fear not for I am with you. What does it mean? Well, as we walk this life on our way to the next life, we are afflicted with pain and sorrow and trials, physical and spiritual weaknesses, temptations of the flesh, but, 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 we can go with all of our needs to Golgotha and to Gethsemane. And with grateful hearts, we can fall on our knees at the foot of the cross and reflect there on the unspeakable pain, terror, and hellish agony suffered there for you. A well-known Southern spiritual, the song asks the question, were you there? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there? Were you there when they nailed him to the cross? And the cry of the Christian is, yes, yes, yes. Yes, a jubilantly, yes. Every nail driven through his hand for me. His body beaten for me. A crown of thorns on his brow for me. His body pierced with a sword for me. All for me. All for you. Oh Lord, we sang it together. Were the whole realm of nature mine. That were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine. Demands my soul, my life, my all.